More than 3 million people are diagnosed with acute respiratory distress syndrome. ARDS is not a disease, but rather it's a syndrome. How do we set the PEEP appropriately? How we recruit lung and oxygenate patients is complicated. Muscular blocking agents do not, and I repeat, they do not reduce 28 or 90 day mortality. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So happy that you're joining us for this podcast. I feel like we've got a great topic for you in terms of mechanical ventilation on a patient population that surprisingly we are seeing a little bit more and more in the emergency department, especially in the setting of COVID-19 infection and ARDS. And so we're going to touch on some very key principles for mechanical ventilation in patients with ARDS based on a great article that was just published online ahead of print in the Journal of Critical Care. But before we dive in to our podcast and our educational offering this month, let me bring in my amazing co-host here, Dr. Peter W., Dr. Rob Rodriguez, and Dr. John Greenwood. Gentlemen, it's been a few weeks. We've had some guests on from Gabe Wardy talking about the latest sepsis literature in Annals of Emergency Medicine, Ken Butler teaching us on the physiologically difficult airway. So it's been a few weeks. How have you been over the past month? It's been nice, Mike, to have fewer COVID patients and more patients coming back to the emergency department. So we've been robust with trauma in New Orleans and a lot less COVID. So we're thankful for all of that. That is great to hear. Rob, how are you doing? Same experience as Peter. It's been great out here. We, in fact, had a day in which we had no COVID patients in our hospital which was sort of a landmark day for us. That's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. And as Peter mentioned, we have returned to our pre-COVID sort of trauma census and other illnesses are making up for it. So yeah, it's been really, really good. I'm sensing a theme in our experiences. John, are you having the same experience up in Philly? Well, partly. In our emergency departments, the number of COVID patients has gone down. However, in the ICU, we are still taking care of a number of patients in our HVICU, kind of on the back end. So our long venovenous ECMO runs, some lung transplants that have been successful after COVID, which is exciting. So taking care of patients after they've recovered in the latter stages. So it's definitely an interesting time, we're learning a lot still. Agreed. And, you know, I think I've heard this a lot in terms of media and a lot of bigger names. And even many of us are using the phrase that the light at the end of the tunnel is growing brighter. And certainly it's a lot brighter than when we talked many months ago, as vaccinations continue to spread across the U.S., spread across the world, and we're all seeing a decrease, thankfully, in our COVID numbers. But over the past year, As I alluded to, we have dealt with many, many sick patients who have had COVID-19 infection and have subsequently developed ARDS as a result of that infection. And it's to that end, and also just the incidence of this condition, and we are making this diagnosis actually more frequently in our emergency departments. We thought this would be a great topic to talk about and really kind of bring things together with respect to mechanical ventilation. How do we ventilate appropriately best practice, evidence-based, the patient that we diagnose with ARDS. And it's based on a really great article, as I mentioned, the Taglini, 
and all. It's entitled 10 Golden Rules for Individualized Mechanical Ventilation in Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, published online in the Journal of Critical Care. So we're going to go through that and also add some of our salient key teaching points, pearls, and pitfalls along the way. So to get us started by way of background, more than 3 million people each year across the globe are diagnosed with acute respiratory distress syndrome. In fact, it accounts for up to about 10% of ICU admissions globally. And almost all of these patients at some point in their hospital care do require mechanical ventilation. And as you've heard us say on many times in the podcast, mechanical ventilation is a medical therapy that if misused or misset can actually result in lung injury. We term that ventilator-induced lung injury. And over the past many years, there have been numerous randomized controlled trials, many other retrospective observational studies that have all served to improve our understanding with the implementation and subsequent adjustment of mechanical ventilation in patients with ARDS. So it's to that end why we feel that this is really important. We are seeing these patients and we really need to know how to ventilate them. So Rob, before we start turning the dials, maybe if you can give us an idea of, of what are we really talking about with ARDS and how do we recognize it when the patient's in front of us? Yeah, Mike, as the name implies, we have to make the fundamental point that ARDS is not a disease, but rather it's a syndrome. And it's characterized by inflammatory lung injury with some pathophysiologic effects that are represented by parenchymal stiffening of the lung or consolidation of the lung. This results in decreased lung compliance. You also have premature alveolar closure. You have altered vascular permeability in the lung. You develop increased lung water content in the lung, so the lung becomes heavier and more wet. And this all results in severe gas exchange failure, both in terms of oxygenation and CO2 transport. And according to the Berlin definition of ARDS, you have to have the following criteria. You have to have acute onset of hypoxemia with respiratory symptoms within a week of some insult. You have to have hypoxemia as measured by PaO2 to FiO2 ratios. You also must have bilateral opacities on lung imaging that are not fully explained by pleural effusions, by lobar collapse, or by nodules. And then finally, you have to have the absence of cardiac failure, CHF, or fluid overload as being the primary cause of the syndrome. And in terms of severity, it's generally divided into mild, moderate, and severe. Mild is a P to F ratio of 200 to 300. And in this mild severity of illness, the predicted mortality is about 27%. In moderate ARDS, the PDF ratio is 100 to 200, with a predicted mortality of 32%. And then finally, with severe ARDS, the PDF ratio dips below 100, and the predicted mortality hits 45% or higher in these cases. Outstanding, Rob. Well, Peter, I'm going to turn to you. Now, I've got a patient who comes in, they're hypoxemic. I'm working them up. I see that they have bilateral opacities. It doesn't appear to be cardiac failure. They don't appear to have volume overload. They appear to be meeting that criteria of ARDS. Walk us through how do we want to turn the knobs? 
so we can reduce ventilator-induced lung injury and give this patient the best chance or the best evidence-based care possible, regardless of the location. Right, and so the theme for this is going to consistently be low tidal volume ventilation, right? Or lung protective ventilation. And this all was generated by the ARDSNET study, which changed our clinical management of ARDS to focus on this protective ventilatory management. This is a tidal volume of six cc's per kilogram of predicted body weight. We're going to hold to that. And we're also going to shoot for plateau pressures less than 30 centimeters of water. And so if you don't know how to measure plateau pressure, we're not fussing at you. We're not shaming you. You just need to make sure that your respiratory therapist has the ability to give that number to you accurately and consistently, because that's going to help drive your care for the patient. So plateau pressure is the most important parameter in the pathogenesis of ventilator-induced lung injury, that along with the tidal volume and along with the PEEP. So we want to avoid high tidal volumes. We also want to avoid high pressures or high peeps. And so one of the things that's gained popularity in the last three years has really been driving pressure. It's recently been reported to be better at predicting mortality in ARDS patients. And we are still looking for more literature to accrue in this from a prospective standpoint, not just an observational study. And again, driving pressure is tidal volume over the respiratory system compliance or CRS. And so driving pressure represents with distending volume in the respiratory system when tidal volume is delivered by the ventilator. And so the way to measure this in your head, I want you to think about driving pressure equals the plateau pressure minus the set peep. So you get your plateau pressure measured and you subtract your set measurement of PEEP from it, and that's your driving pressure. And then one study has suggested a target driving pressure of 13 to 15 centimeters of water. So 13 to 15 centimeters of water when you take your plateau pressure and subtract from that your set PEEP. Now, whether PEEP should be set to minimize driving pressure remains a controversial issue, and we'll talk more about PEEP shortly. At present time, adjusting ventilatory parameters based on reducing driving pressures is not being recommended. Although plateau pressure and limiting that less than 30 is still considered one of the most important parameters for protecting against ventilator-induced lung injury or ventilator-associated lung injury. Very, very helpful, Peter. So we've talked before, but setting that tidal volume of six mLs per kilogram, importantly, of predicted body weight, and we need to be following the plateau pressures, whether we're doing it with an end inspiratory hold or whether we're asking our respiratory therapist to do it, we're looking for that number less than 30. And you've brought us up to date with the discussion on driving pressure, perhaps not ready for prime time implementing, making those adjustments, but really keen in on tidal volume and plateau pressure. And you mentioned PEEP, which probably deserves its own discussion. So John, how do we set the PEEP appropriately? 
All right. So first of all, Peter, I have to say that driving pressure point, it may not be ready for prime time yet, but it's in prime time in my practice. It's something I've definitely adopted, but it is super important. And one of the components of driving pressure is PEEP or positive end expiratory pressure. And just as a reminder, if you have to conceptualize PEEP, really what it is, it's the amount of pressure that's left in the patient's lungs when they're on positive pressure ventilation after they breathe out. So if you take a deep breath in and then breathe out halfway, the remaining pressure that's in your lung at the end of that breath, that's PEEP. And it is an essential aspect of ARDS management. In fact, it's so important that it was left out of the definition, which is kind of crazy and it's been controversial as well. The idea that a PF ratio, it really should be done once the PEEP is optimized. It's not just the PF ratio overall. But anyways, I kind of got off track there a little bit, but I think, you know, the benefits of PEEP really involve a few important things. So it is crucial for alveolar recruitment. It reduces intrapulmonary shunt and it improves overall arterial oxygenation if set properly. Now, certainly if it's not set to the right amount, it can be detrimental to patients. In fact, it can increase inspiratory lung volume. It does increase the risk of excessive volume trauma and ventilator-induced lung injury. So we do have to be careful in titrating PEEP. It's not just something that we can just dial up and forget about it. So current guidelines recommend reserving high PEEP strategies for moderate to severe ARDS. And so what they mean by high PEEP strategies, if you remember back to your ARDSnet tables, there were the low and high PEEP strategies. I think that most of us have gone to that low to moderate PEEP strategy while considering driving pressure maybe as a part of our titration approach. According to the authors of this paper that we're discussing, the threshold for defining high versus low PEEP, they recommended a number of 12 centimeters of water. They don't recommend using an average PEEP greater than 15 centimeters of water as, like we said, you can get some of the downsides of excessive PEEP, which include hemodynamic compromise and increased need or excessive fluid administration as you're trying to combat the decrease in venous return from your high intrathoracic pressures from high PEEP. There are currently no definitive recommendations on how to set PEEP. And, you know, the authors say specifically that the best way to individualize PEEP is to use a low PEEP to PaO2 to FiO2 ratio. Now, that sounds kind of complicated. Again, kind of one of the reasons why I like driving pressure so much. It just simplifies it at the end of the day. But how we recruit lung and oxygenate patients is complicated. So we're still trying to figure some of this out. PEEP really should be set to the lowest level to maintain an acceptable SAT. And usually I think for most ARDS patients, really targeting a lower threshold of 88 to 92%. Or if I know we talked about the low PAO2 trial recently, a PAO2 of 55 to 70 millimeters of mercury, if, if you use PAO2s over peripheral SATs, you can use that threshold as well. PEEP should be set to protect the right ventricle. Now, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. So as I believe we've talked about before, excessive intrathoracic pressure can cause increase in pulmonary hypertension, which is afterload for the right ventricle. So you can get some right ventricular dilation and reduce function with excessive PEEP. So, you know, I think that's something to keep in mind, particularly in the patient who may be hemodynamically compromised with ARDS. So just be careful, you know, really, as you titrate up the PEEP, be thoughtful about how much fluid you're giving the patient and certainly making sure that if your patient's 
getting worse or getting more hypotensive if you have the opportunity to put an ultrasound probe on the patient's chest and look at the right ventricle and you see all of a sudden it's dilated, that might be a sign that maybe your mechanical ventilation strategy needs to be altered just a little bit. This has already been enormously beneficial. We've had an awareness or I have an increased awareness now of ARDS, the likelihood that I'm going to be seeing these patients making the diagnosis in the ED. And Peter, John, you've given us the critical initial settings, tidal volume, PEEP, following plateau pressures, the key numbers to focus on. But let's just say that patient turns into an ICU border and they're in the ED for a period of time and then they're kind of slowly deteriorating. Perhaps they're developing refractory hypoxemia. I'm having challenges with the ventilator. The ventilator alarms are going off. Let's kind of move into things that we may not necessarily be aware of or have some vague familiarity, but what can we do, say, while the patient's, say, boarding in the emergency department? One of which, Rob, I'm going to turn to you. I've heard you give a great refractory hypoxemia lecture in years past, and you talked about this concept of recruitment maneuvers. Maybe kind of walk us through that to see if there's benefit to knowing about recruitment maneuvers. Yeah, Mike. So recruitment maneuvers have become a bit of a controversial topic. Formerly, they were somewhat all the rage, but now they're less in favor. And by recruitment maneuvers, we mean techniques that are used to open up the alveoli, techniques to try to reverse that collapsed alveoli syndrome and atelectasis. And as we mentioned before, in ARDS, the total weight of the lungs is increased due to interstitial fluid and alveolar edema. And as such, this edema causes more atelectasis. It causes greater atelectasis in the dependent parts of the lung. And this collapse of this atelectasis and collapse of alveoli reduces the surface available for gas exchange and promotes further injury because of shear stresses from opening and closing of those alveoli, recruitment and derecruitment of alveoli. So historically, recruitment maneuvers have been postulated to perhaps decrease intrapulmonary shunt, improve oxygenation, and perhaps improve some outcomes. And as I mentioned before, they were somewhat more popular in the preceding years. And so how do you do a recruitment maneuver? What's that about? Basically, a number of techniques, but the theme of recruitment maneuvers is that you maintain a high airway pressure for a limited period of time. The way that I typically have done it in the past is, of course, the patient's on 100% oxygen. Patient has to be paralyzed pretty much if you're going to do this. You start at your baseline peep of around 15 centimeters of water, and then you slowly dial up the peep to as high as like 40 or even 45 over about 30 seconds. And then you hold that pressure in the lung without ventilation. During this time, you're not ventilating the patient. You're just supplying PEEP. You hold that for about 30 seconds, and then you dial it back down to what your pre-existing PEEP was. And this maneuver was supposedly shown to increase your oxygenation, to open up some of those collapsed alveoli. But at present, the evidence is really very mixed on the efficacy of these recruitment maneuvers in ARDS. There were a couple of 
trials, a trial that came out about two or three years ago in which they randomized patients to recruitment maneuvers versus otherwise standard care. And they found no improvement of outcomes and perhaps even a, a little bit of worsening. So this maneuver can lead to hemodynamic impairment and overdistension. And as such, they're not necessarily currently recommended in the treatment of patients with severe ARDS. So bottom line is I still think about them. I probably don't do them as often as I used to. I'd be interested to hear what you guys do about that. Peter, thoughts? Yeah, I've moved away from this. I wasn't a strong proponent from it even early on, used it sparingly in the toughest cases, but it's not a part of my standard practice. John. Yeah, I agree. It's not part of my standard practice anymore. There are times in which I will use them. You know, I think in the emergency department, one of the most common times that I will use a recruit maneuver is patients who are moving around the emergency department who may go to CAT scan or who may get disconnected briefly from the ventilator for whatever reason. And then they get put back on and they're severely hypoxic. The likely reason is they de-recruited because they lost their PEEP for a transient period of time. And in that case, as long as I'm sure about hemodynamic stability, I will do a recruitment maneuver to try and regain some of that alveolar volume loss. But in general, I don't use them as a routine matter of practice. I think those are great pearls. John, are you doing it the same as how Rob described he does it? Yeah, pretty much. I think so. I mean, the classic 30 for 30 is, I think, fairly standard in terms of clinical practice. All right. So great information on recruitment maneuvers. Peter, let me turn to you. I seem to recall some articles in years past on perhaps neuromuscular blocking agents. And I think we've all become much more familiar with prone positioning in the setting of this past 15 months with COVID, but perhaps tackle those two topics and bring us up to speed. Absolutely. And so Again, when we think about our sickest patients with ARDS, you have to really talk about neuromuscular blocking agents, but let's consider some of the evidence that's there. We know that patients with severe ARDS may, again, may benefit from the administration of neuromuscular blocking agents. That doesn't mean that you have to do this for all of your patients, but in some of your toughest patients who are displaying ventilator patient dysynchrony, it's a have to in some of those patients that you're not reaching your goals with sedation alone. So we know that neuromuscular blocking agents may reduce that dysynchrony. It reduces oxygen consumption in many cases. It can increase compliance and it can also increase functional residual capacity, so overall lung volume. They may also play a role in limiting de-recruitment and maintaining the PEEP that the patient is set to. So the current evidence indicates that neuromuscular blocking agents do not, and I repeat, they do not reduce 28 or 90-day mortality. So those are hard numbers, and we've looked at that, and we've presented that here before on the podcast. It doesn't alter ventilator-free days, nor does it alter the duration of mechanical ventilation. So again, this isn't a panacea. This isn't something that's going to fix all those things for our patient. However, neuromuscular blocking agents may improve oxygenation and reduce underlying barotrauma. Again, if the patient's having dyssynchrony and breath stacking, you can understand that if we paralyze them, that would go away. 
So the other issue other than neuromuscular blocking agents is prone positioning. And this is understanding that the ventilation of the dependent areas of the lungs, particularly in COVID and particularly in those patients with elevated BMI, right? That ventilation of those dependent lung areas is impaired in the supine positioning that we find our ARDS patients in. Gravity dependent areas are more extensively perfused, which results in hypoxemia as a result of the ventilation perfusion mismatching. We know that there are marked improvements in oxygenation that can be seen in patients with ARDS who are prone as more of that homogeneous VQ ratio is achieved and shunt is decreased, right? So if we are flipping the patients and the more dependent areas are now being ventilated and perfused, we have better matching for those patients. Now, we see prone positioning not only improves the oxygenation, but can also reduce the risk of ventilator-associated or ventilator-induced lung injury. Now, we got some conflicting studies on the overall benefits of prone positioning. The current guidelines would recommend cycles of prone positioning lasting at least 16 hours for patients with a PF ratio of less than 150. But you want to be there at least 16 hours. It is cost effective and it's relatively easy to implement. Again, we in our hospital would establish teams to do the flipping and turning and that helped take the load off of the bedside nurse who could monitor the patient during these periods. It's considered the best technique for opening up the lungs and keeping them open. And something that, again, we've talked about on this podcast in particular as it relates to ARDS and our COVID patients. I'd be interested in you guys' opinions on prone positioning and neuromuscular blocking agents. John, I'm going to start with you this time. Yeah. So I think my practice has gone away from routine administration of paralytics in patients with severe ARDS, really focusing on bolus dosing in patients who may have some ventilator dyssynchrony. This can be challenging because the ventilator synchrony part oftentimes is complicated. So trying to figure out how to get that patient in line with mechanical ventilation can sometimes be really tricky. And a dose of paralytic that gives you 30 minutes to kind of figure things out often can be helpful. In terms of prone positioning, I lean on it really early. Actually, if the trajectory of the patient's going pretty poorly and I'm approaching a PF ratio of 150, 180, I'm getting this patient turned within the next hour or so, or else thinking about when I'm going to activate my vena venous ECMO team. And if I was in the hospital thinking about transfer, this is a really important trigger or at least threshold for some advanced therapies. So that PF ratio 150 is an important number for all of us clinicians. Great, great pearls. Both of you, Rob, let me ask your thoughts. I'm somewhat of a fan of neuromuscular blockers. I use them fairly regularly, I would say, for the first 24 hours type of thing. When patients may be in that very active phase and I really want to take control of their ventilation, that's not to say that I use it in every patient, but I pretty commonly use them and I try to limit it to get things stabilized for 24 hours or so. And in terms of prone positioning, yeah, I mean, the COVID pandemic has really transformed certainly my use and and I think across the country and across the globe, our use of proning. The biggest issue used to be that we were just not really very comfortable with it. We were always worried about patients getting disconnected, 
and real problems that do occur when you're switching people to proning. Now that our ICU staff has become very used to flopping people over from supine to prone and prone to supine, I use it a lot more often. I think the one thing about COVID is it's taken away that barrier to using that really very, very productive technique of proning. Wholeheartedly agree with the three of you. We've certainly implemented it in the emergency department for some of our severe patients, proning them. And admittedly, my utilization of NMBA is pretty sparingly or sparse. Maybe that's a better term. Having said that, we just we, we just had a patient that was exceedingly difficult to ventilate about a week and a half ago and started the NMBA infusion actually in the emergency department while they were boarding, waiting to go upstairs with alternative modes of mechanical ventilation. But I would be in line with the three of you in terms of both of those particular therapies. All right, well, let's bring this discussion to a close. John, let me turn to you for our final segment. We've talked about some key and critical important initial settings, things to think about when the patient's still boarding in the emergency department per se, or they're up in the ICU and things are starting to turn south. Is there anything left? What else could we offer this patient who's declining, deteriorating with severe ARDS? Mike, that's a loaded question. Of course, there's more. There's always more. <laughs> well, you know, I think there's uh, definitely some adjunctive type therapies that we could consider. So inhaled nitric oxide, I think is something that's been around for quite some time. It's been used largely to treat what Peter was talking about, the VQ mismatch that's associated with ARDS, largely due to alveolar lung water versus perfusion and to treat the macro circulation of the lungs, so the pulmonary hypertension, but it does, in fact, help improve the oxygen movement between alveoli and lung capillaries. So improving that VQ mismatch, nitric oxide can be effective in improving patient's hypoxemia. But, you know, it really hasn't been proven to benefit mortality overall. But again, it's not a silver bullet. I think it's something in your back pocket as an adjunctive therapy while you're trying to do a few other things to, you know, escape this patient through. The other pulmonary vasodilator that we use actually more commonly is inhaled epoprostenol. It's a little bit easier to use. It's an aerosolized drug as opposed to a gas. But I think is a little bit less expensive than inhaled nitric oxide. So something that might be more readily available at your hospital if that's something used as a pulmonary vasodilator. Now, in terms of inhaled nitric oxide, there are some side effects just to be aware of. So met hemoglobinemia and renal dysfunction have been reported in prolonged use of inhaled nitric oxide. And it can also reduce platelet aggregation, which may or may not be a good thing, depending on how you look at it, and systemic vasodilation. So as with all medications, it's important not only to know their indications, but potentially contraindications and side effects. Now, let's just say you've done everything right. You've paralyzed the patient, you've optimized the PEEP. Maybe you've prone them, maybe in the emergency department you have not, but this patient needs are escalating very rapidly. One other thing to consider, which we've discussed a few times here on CCPM, is the use of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation as a salvage therapy in patients with severe ARDS. Now, current ELSO guidelines, ELSO is the governing body that kind of provides guidelines for ECMO management, recommend initiating ECMO therapy in hypoxic respiratory failure for patients with a high mortality risk, so greater than 50% 
So those patients with a really low PF ratio. So again, that less than 150 or a high FiO2 requirement greater than 90%, or if the PF ratio is less than 100, and occasionally that is quoted as a mortality risk of over 80%. So this is really recommended from a guideline perspective as a salvage therapy, not yet something ready for early use just yet. Now, certainly these patients have a lot of dead space in their lungs. So retention of PCO2, despite getting that respiratory rate up with your low tidal volume settings, some patients, you can't ventilate them enough. And that respiratory acidosis is getting worse and worse and worse. You can consider extracorporeal therapy in those patients. And then certainly there are some indications for patients who may be able to be bridged to transplant or have some other pulmonary processes, but I think largely in the context of ARDS, it's those who are really, really sick. So keep in mind for those patients with a PF less than 150. Now there are some relative contraindications, just as you're thinking about calling your ECMO team. So if you're in the ICU on a ventilator for more than seven days, oftentimes that's considered a threshold for a yes or no kind of answer. Immunosuppression, hemorrhaging anywhere, particularly in the brain, is likely going to take them off that ECMO candidacy list as these patients often need anticoagulation in some form. Older age, which every institution defines it differently at University of Pennsylvania, we kind of look around that age of 70 as a cutoff or terminal malignancy or any terminal diseases may be a consideration against using ECBO in these patients with severe ARDS. So certainly there are some things in your back pocket, inhaled pulmonary vasodilators, and surely ECMO or transfer to an ECMO center might be something if your patient is continuing to get worse despite doing everything right. That was an outstanding way to end here, John, on what has been, and I feel, a truly robust discussion and really packing the important pearls, some pitfalls into ventilating this patient population that we've certainly all gotten much more experience in over 2020 and 2021, but assuredly, even prior to COVID, these patients were in our EDs, they were in our acute care settings, and we're beginning to recognize it more and more. And so I think you guys have done an amazing job really giving us the right parameters, the right numbers to target, and things to consider when patients, John, you put appropriately, have escalating care needs, they're clinically deteriorating, really, really outstanding job. So my thanks to the three of you. And I think with that, we're out of time for this podcast. But we do want to leave you all with a teaser. There's going to be some nice and we feel very exciting and important changes coming to the podcast here as we move into the summer and July. But we're going to save that for a later time. We'll talk to you about that in July. Just know that we've got some exciting changes coming. We are super excited to talk about them with you. And we will do so once we get into the July series of podcasts. So we've gone a little bit long. So let me wrap things up. So thankful that you listened to us here on the podcast on mechanical ventilation and ARDS. Please let us know if you have any questions, concerns, comments, follow-up. Happy to connect with all of you. Once again, this is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, wishing you all a wonderful day, wonderful week, wonderful few weeks until we talk again. Bye for now.